Good morning, church. Ready to dive in? Let's open our Bibles to the book of Micah. Chapters 1 through 3 of the book have been all about God's justice, and they've been hard-hitting. We've gotten a little break. We've seen that the divided kingdoms of Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, have failed to do what God had called them to do. The northern kingdom of Israel was completely given over to idolatry. And so in chapter 1, we read that Samaria, its capital, would be destroyed and the people exiled. Chapters 2 and 3 focused on the southern kingdom of Judah, where Micah served as a prophet in their capital, Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the, the location of the temple of the Lord, which is paramount. That's the most important thing. This kingdom was supposed to be a light to the world, the great example of God's love and justice to the nations. But in chapter 2, we saw that the leaders of Judah brutally oppressed the common person for their own wealth and for their own gain, building up little, little kingdoms for themselves. And that the prophets of Judah had sold their gifts to the highest bidder to fill their bellies. And last week, we studied chapter 3, and Pastor Andrew did such an excellent job walking us through how every tier of leadership in Jerusalem had failed in their task. Chapter 3, verse 11 kind of cuts to the chase. Let's look there. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money, yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. And then Micah used really vivid imagery in that chapter to describe exactly what those leaders were doing to God's people. He described them as cannibals, chopping up the people like, like meat for a stew. And of course, all of this, after all this abuse and oppression, we read verse 12. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins. So these chapters have been a bit of a beatdown. They've become gradually worse, right? The leaders have been presented in a worse and worse light since chapter 1 where God descends from the heavens and and melts the mountains with his wrath as it's poured out upon these leaders who have failed to rule justly. Is there any hope for God's people? That's what the first three chapters of Micah leaves us asking. Or will God simply kick them out of the promised land and reject his people forever? Chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, gives us the answer. And it's good news. So let's stand together and read it. Micah chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. This is the word of the Lord. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord 
shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of the hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted, and the lame I will make the remnant and those who are cast off a strong nation, and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you it shall come. The former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. Let's pray. Please be seated. Lord, as we come to your word today, we ask for understanding. We ask that it would be be clear to us exactly what you want us to know and how to apply it. We pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Lord, we ask that you would give us discernment by your spirit. We are eager for it today. In Jesus' name, amen. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. It's like a breath of fresh air. There is hope. The leaders of Israel had failed, and they failed miserably. The kings did not reign in justice. The landowners abused the common people and stole from them. The prophets only said things, good things for those who gave them food. And even the priesthood was corrupt. But in the face of that kind of oppression and corruption, we have an obvious question. How are things going to be made right? What kind of leader does Israel really need? What kind of leader do we really need? And Micah answers that question in chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. The leader that the people of God need is God himself. These verses present us with the ultimate hope for God's people, us included. And that's God's reign over all the earth. We see here a a world in in verses 1 through 8 of chapter 4. A world that is put right and ruled justly. A world where people stream to the house of the Lord. A world where the lame are gathered together and redeemed as a strong nation. So as the rightful leader of his people... We see God doing four things in this chapter that bring justice and peace to his kingdom. First, God brings the nations by his word. In verse 1, we're told that the events of this oracle will occur in the latter days, which means simply sometime in the future. That's all that really means. The point is that God will bring these events about in history at a particular point in time. 
So Micah's not giving us a utopian idea to work toward. We need to understand that, that, that God is actually going to do this. It's not theoretical. It's a promise. These things will happen in history for God's people. So while we read these verses, we need to see that they rightfully apply to us as God's people. And they should inform our hope and what we look forward to from God. Verse 1 goes on to say, The mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. And it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it. Notice the attention that Micah places not on the house of the Lord, but on the mountain of the Lord. The mountain of God upon which sits his house is established as the highest mountain, lifted up above all the hills. The temple in Jerusalem sat on top of a hill. Not the biggest hill, but a hill. And there were all kinds of, are all kinds of hills that tower over it, all around it in the surrounding region. And apparently, Micah still has in mind the geographical region of Jerusalem here. So does that mean that in the latter days, sometime in the future, God will reconfigure the geography of the region so that the Temple Mount is higher than all the other mountains of the earth? That's definitely possible. We can't put anything beyond God. It does seem to be a sense where geography changes in the coming of Jesus. But I don't think Micah's point is topographical. Okay, the idea is that in the latter days, the presence of God will be so important to the people of the world that it will be the highest mountain in importance and priority, higher than any other mountain, and it's not even close. It will be so important that the people's plural will flow to it. The NIV says that the people's will stream to it, right? The, the multiplicity of different people groups will come to the mountain of the Lord like a stream of focused water, like a pressure washer. The mountain of the Lord will be the mountain with the highest esteem. It will be a place worth leaving home for just to be in the presence of God, to stream to. Now, that's not how the world treats the presence of God today. In verse 1, the promise of God, the action of God, is to bring the world to himself, to his presence. You might be wondering even about all of this mountain imagery, why it's so important. The hills and mountains throughout the scriptures are powerful metaphors. They represent a touch point, a place where man can experience the presence of God. And so God is bringing the nations to himself. It is his first promised action. Right now, the nations stay away from God's presence, by and large. But in the future, they will stream to the mountain of the Lord. Hallelujah! Praise the Lord. Yeah, the peoples will come to God. Do you want to see that in your own life? Doesn't that sound like a wonderful promise? That the, that the focus of the, the people of the whole world will to be, to be to be in the presence of God. It sounds like a wonderful thing. Mountains are worth discussing here 
for a few minutes. This is not a fluke that they appear in Micah chapter 4. In fact, if you read a lot of the New Testament, they come up over and over and over again as a strong metaphor for the presence of God and for him interacting with people in history. So indulge me as I do a brief biblical theology of mountains for you. Check this out. It's really cool. There's a good argument to be made that Eden was on top of a mountain because rivers flowed out of Eden. And Adam and Eve are cast out of Eden and even down the mountain of God. Noah's ark later on in Genesis comes safely and securely after the flood on top of a mountain. And it was there that God made his covenant with Noah not to flood the world again. And in Genesis 11, the sinful people of the world try to make a man-made mountain in order to reach God. We call it the Tower of Babel. In Genesis 22, God calls Abraham to sacrifice Isaac on top of a mountain. Of course, Abraham passes the test and affirms his covenant with God once again. In Exodus 3, where does Moses meet God? At the burning bush. Mount Horeb. And in Exodus 19, God descends on Mount Sinai to give the law and to make the Mosaic covenant. And man, there's a bunch of other examples. God reveals himself to Moses and lets him see his backside on the mountain as Moses is hid in the cleft of a rock. God sent fire down onto an altar that Elijah erected for him against the prophets of Baal to prove that he is the strongest in 1 Kings 18 on Mount Carmel. He encouraged the despairing Elijah with the soft whisper of his voice on the mountaintop. There are numerous references to mountains and hills in the Psalms and wisdom literature and throughout the prophets, too many to list, too many to count. But of course, the New Testament is rife with them too. Jesus interprets the law in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, where? The side of a hill. He's transfigured into his full glory on the mountaintop. He's crucified on top of a hill and he ascends into heaven on a hilltop. I'm sorry, I couldn't help myself here. The symbolism of mountains and the presence of God in Scripture is so pervasive. I really want you to see it, that when Micah brings up mountains here as the mountain of the Lord, it's a touch point. It's a place where God's presence is. When God is pictured as coming down on a mountain, it's him entering into history, doing something powerful. So here in Micah 4... We see the mountain of the Lord, the presence of the Lord, established above all other mountains. Praise the Lord. False worship, worship of idols, almost always took place on mountaintops. The false idols of the northern kingdoms of Israel were established in the high places of Dan and Bethel. When you read that in the Old Testament, think on top of hills, literally. For the mountain of the Lord to be lifted up above every hill and mountain is the same as idolatry being put to an end. Praise the Lord. There's no competition with God's mountain and God's presence. That's the first promise. Are you eager for that? That all other competition for for God's presence will be put away. That God will reign supreme over the world. The nations will recognize that supremacy and flow to the mountain of the Lord. Look again at verse 2. 
Many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we we may walk in his paths. Now, this has not been just the people of God. This is not just the nation of Israel we're talking about. These are the nations of the world. And Micah shows us that everything has been completely changed. The nations are welcomed and brought to the mountain of the Lord to worship him and walk in his ways, and they want to. That sounds like New Testament stuff. And what draws them to the mountain? Did you notice that? What draws them? For out of Zion shall come forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. What brings the nation streaming to the mount of the Lord? His word. His word. The reason the peoples and the nations are flowing to the mountain of the Lord is because the word of God has been flowing out of Jerusalem. All of this worship, all of this faith from the nations is a result of the word of God going forth. That was the purpose of the nation of Israel, to demonstrate to the world what it meant to live in a covenant relationship with God. That's the purpose of the church, to show the world the grace of God and to bring them his word. As the word goes forth, the peoples and the nations will come to the presence of God. That's a promise. Do we believe it? Micah 4, 2 should serve for us as an evangelistic challenge. Do we believe that the word of God is so powerful that it will bring the diverse peoples of the world to the mountain of God? And do we see that as a spiritual imperative? The people come to him because the word is sent forth. Are you a part of that? There's a double flowing here in the first two verses. People's flowing to the mount of the Lord and the word of God flowing out of Jerusalem. Are we a part of that? We've all been tasked to go to the world and make disciples of all nations. That's revealed to you. That is the revealed will of God for you. To make disciples of all nations. Not just for pastors or missionaries. We should take that call really seriously. If we want to see this promise. If we want to see the nations flowing to the mountain of God. If we want to participate in that. And verses 1 through 2 completely reverse the judgment of chapter 3, verse 12, where the mountain of Zion is pictured as a heap of ruins. God will establish his presence once more, and the people of the world will desire it. And that's partially fulfilled in the book of Ezra, when the temple is rebuilt after the exile. It's a wonderful thing that God brought his people back to their promised land. But you'll remember that when the temple was finally finished in the book of Ezra, there was a mixed response. There was joy that it was rebuilt and that real worship of the Lord could begin again, but there was also sorrow at the fact that the temple didn't quite look like the temple Solomon had built. 
wasn't quite the same. It wasn't quite as good. The reason for that sorrow was because the ultimate fulfillment of God's presence wasn't going to be the temple in Jerusalem. The ultimate fulfillment of God's presence, this promise, was going to be the incarnation of the Son of God. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of Micah 4, 1 through 2. People and the nations will flow to the Son of God. They will clamor to be near Him and to hear His teaching. We've seen that in the book of Matthew. The nations of the world will be saved and brought to the presence of God by Jesus Christ. God brings His people to Himself by His Word, who is Jesus. Jesus says this in John 6, 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Praise the Lord. That's good news. Second, God brings peace to a warring world. So all of the peoples of the world, the nations of the world, will agree together and come to his mountain, to his presence. And all of this is because the word of God has gone forth from the world. And the result of all this will be peace. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Those are some of the most famous words in the book of Micah. Here we're given a picture of a world at peace because of the justice of the Lord. In verse 3, we see that he will be the judge. And that's not a bad thing. That's not presented in a pessimistic light. That is a reason to worship today because he will bring peace among nations. The land will finally have a just judge, which reverses the injustice of the leaders of Israel from chapter 3, verse 1. The dispute of the nations will end, and as a result, the weapons of war will no longer be needed. The metal used to make swords and spears, weapons that destroy, destroy the image of God, will be used to make items for agriculture. Creation, the prospering of image bearers. The nations will no longer fight against one another. And places that train soldiers, like West Point, will be obsolete because war itself will end. And that promise reverses the false peace that the, promise, the, the prophets proclaimed in chapter 3, verse 5. Maybe you've been noticing a theme here. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, reverses all of the terrible oppression and injustice we find so far in the book as God does it, as he leads his people. It's a wonderful picture. And it's something our hearts should long for. The peace of the world through the justice of God. War is not a good thing. And even when it's most justified, it's terrible for humanity. 
as the people of God, we should hunger for a time when war will be no more. When the weapons of war are repurposed for the benefit of man and not used for destruction. And we should look forward to and hope for the peace of God to rule on earth like this. And we should be careful not to glorify something that God will specifically bring to a just end. Let me say that again. We should be careful now not to glorify something that God will specifically bring to a just end. Instead of war, the nations of the world will experience true peace under his rule. Scripture says, they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree. Now, that's a beautiful statement. It's a picture of peace. But it's kind of an interesting image. It seems to come out of nowhere. What does it mean to sit under a vine and a fig tree? It pops up in several places throughout Scripture, all based off of one really important text. 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 25. 1 Kings 4 is all about the righteous reign of the wise king Solomon. He brought peace to the land of Israel for the first time in a long time. So this is how 1 Kings 4, 25 describes that peace. Listen to this. And Judah and Israel, still united together, lived in safety. From Dan even to Beersheba, that is from the north to the south, every man under his vine and under his fig tree. All the days of Solomon. It sounds like the happy ending of a good book. The idea is that it's found in the first half of these verses, right? They all lived in safety. Everyone can comfortably enjoy the fruits of their vineyards and orchards without worry of threat. Solomon got to reign over a time of peace. David, his father, was a man of war. And the promise to David was that his son would not be. And that was true. Solomon, as a king, represents peace in the nation. True safety, Micah tells us, exists in a world where God reigns. But not just safety. Micah extends it. He says, and no one shall make them afraid. This is a world without fear. No fear of threat from without or threat from within. There's no fear for the people who live under God's rule. That's a promise that will be brought about in history. He will make all things right. He will put an end to injustice. Why? For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken... Micah reminds us that again, this is all because of the word of the Lord. People stream to the mount of the Lord because the word has gone out to them. And justice reigns and peace reigns in the world because the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The word of God is final. It is complete. And the peace that results from the justice of the Lord is a promise to his people that will not fail. And once again, this has its ultimate fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ, who is our peace. This isn't just a hopeful future, even though it's something we should look forward to when war ends. 
The wonderful, beautiful truth is that Jesus Christ ends the war between me and the Father and brings eternal, lasting peace between us that he completes by his word. Amen? And then for a brief moment, Micah, taking on the role of the people of the Lord, respond to all of these promises in verse 5. For all the peoples walk, each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. He's not looking to the future anymore. He's taking a second and talking and responding to the promises of the future in the present. We look around and we see the nations of the world worshiping their own gods, whatever those might be. But when we reflect upon the promises made to us for our safety and security in the future because of the just reign of God on earth, what do we do? How do we respond? We proclaim to each other and to him that we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Amen? Amen. When we consider the wonderful promises of God, they should make us examine our own lives, which is exactly what Micah is pointing to here. The promises of God should reveal to us in our hearts the things where we betray these hopes. Will we really participate in these promises? Will you really participate in them? Will we persevere in the faith long enough to see them? The promises of God serve as, for us as a touch point to renew our faith. When we're reminded of the promises of God, they should strengthen our resolve to serve him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The worst outcome is to know these promises and not be able to partake in them because you're still dead in your sin. The promises of God are offered to all of those who come to him by faith in his son who believe in his death and resurrection. And so like the metaphorical audience responding to the promises Micah lists in these verses, let's also determine to walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Amen? Third, God brings the afflicted by his grace. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted, and the lame I will make the remnant, and those who were cast off a strong nation, and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. The nations will stream to the mount of the Lord. God will end the disputes of the nations and bring peace. Nation will not lift up sword against nation. All of this has been about the nations of the world. But what about Israel and Judah? Israel is being exiled and Zion will be flattened. What about them? Do they have any hope or is it just all for the nations? Well, in verses 6 and 7, we read the promises of God once again. And the promise here is to gather the people back into the promised land. It's a realistic trail of hopelessness from the first three chapters that the people experienced to an actual remnant that gets to experience the reign of God on earth. God will assemble the lame. 
The people of God, Israel and Judah, have been brought low. They've experienced a great blow from the Lord. And so they can properly be described as lame. God scattered them to the nations. And he even says here in Micah 4 that he will gather the people whom I have afflicted. The people of Israel will receive judgment from the Lord. That's a guarantee. But it's not the end. Praise the Lord. God promises them that he will gather them once again. In fact, the lame will become the remnant and the remnant will become a strong nation. Now that'll partially be fulfilled when God brings the people of Israel out of exile and back to the promised land. Once again, it has its ultimate fulfillment in the future. The Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. The Lord will reign. And we still look forward to that promise of God reigning over his people on earth, making all things new. That is part of our future hope. Did the people of God deserve his grace this way? No. If Micah has been clear about anything, it's that the nations of Israel and Judah only deserved the wrath of God. But that's the thing. That's the thing about the God that we worship. He is supremely just. And he doesn't overlook our sin. But he is also supremely merciful. When God says that he'll gather the lame, I'm reminded of the story of Jacob. Jacob was not a very good guy, right? You know the story. He's kind of a cheat. I mean, his name means to grasp onto the ankle. He's not a very good guy. But he was the son of the promise, and God was faithful to him. And so one night, Jacob wrestled with the angel of the Lord in an unbelievable episode in the scriptures. And the Lord popped out his hip. And from that point on, he was lame. He walked with a limp the rest of his days. And that was for his good. Because now he had a profound relationship with the Lord. And that was also the case with the nation of Israel. They were brought low in order to experience the grace of God to be brought back. And this is the case for all those who believe the gospel. As we learn from the Sermon on the Mount... It is the poor in spirit, those who understand their sin and repent of it, that inherit the kingdom of heaven. The Spirit of God afflicts us in our conscience to repent of our sins. And this isn't a one-time event. We're constantly brought low to be brought back to the presence of God. And the promise is that when we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive our sin. Praise the Lord. The Lord takes those who are cast out. He takes those who are afflicted and made lame. And he restores them by his grace. There is hope for the people of God as there is hope for us. The lame will be gathered and made strong. But notice the end of verse 7. The Lord. The Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. The Lord is pictured as the king. 
which makes verse 8 a little bit perplexing. So fourth, God rules as shepherd king. So look at verse 8 again. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come. The former dominion shall come. Kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord says here that kingship will once again return to Jerusalem. Zion, of course, was a common name for Jerusalem. It's the name of the mountain that the temple was built upon. But God had just finished saying that he will rule over Mount Zion forevermore in verse 7. So what's up with that? Will it be a king or will it be God? Well, let's back up a little bit. Look at the beginning of verse 8 again. Both names, the tower of the flock and the hill of the daughter of Zion is a reference to the city of Jerusalem. We're talking about a particular place. Jerusalem was the capital of the United Kingdoms of Israel under David and Solomon. And it became the capital city of Judah throughout the divided kingdom period. Jerusalem, as we've seen, was the location of the temple. I can't say it again, or I can't say it enough, that that is the most important thing about that city. Not the palace where the king was, not the throne room where the king sat, or the marketplaces, or anywhere else. But the temple of the Lord was the most important thing about Jerusalem. That's what set it apart from every other city in in Israel. And now God promises that dominion and kingship will return to the city of Jerusalem. The Tower of the Flock is an interesting nickname for a city. It doesn't make sense to us outside of a, a culture that doesn't do much with sheep But small shepherd towers were pretty common in this time so that shepherds could could watch their large flocks all at once. So Jerusalem is pictured as a crude tower who watches over the flock. The idea is that God will gather the flock of his people to one place so that he can watch over them. The flock of God will return to the hill of Zion. And God clarifies that he means a king will return. Zion has played a central role in this prophecy the whole time. It's the mountain that the peoples flow to. It's the place where the word of God flows from. All the nations head to Zion in order to be judged by God. And that's God's judgment seat where he puts an end to war and establishes peace over the earth. All the nations head to Zion. And in verse 7... God gathers the lame, the driven away, and the afflicted to Mount Zion in order to reign over them. And throughout the whole chapter, it's been God doing the work. That's the promise and the wonder of Micah 4, is that instead of all these unjust rulers, God takes their place and reverses all the wrongs. It's been God bringing his people to a specific location where he will reign over them. That's why it's a little bit odd to find the promise of kingship in verse 8. That didn't really happen after exile. At first, Israel was a vassal state to Persia. King Cyrus of Persia was the one that sent the people back to the promised land. There was a brief time of independence a few hundred years later with a king in the Hasmonean dynasty, but they weren't kings in the line of David, the promised kings, the actual kings of Israel. 
And then Greece and then Rome took over the area and Jerusalem was eventually destroyed again. In 70 AD, the temple again flattened. No king has returned to the city of Jerusalem. So how would this prophecy be fulfilled? Maybe you see where I'm going. Will it be God or a man that would reign as king over Israel? The answer is yes. Jesus Christ sits on the throne of David and rules his people. He is God and man. To him, kingship and dominion were given over all things. And soon he will come to establish his kingdom on earth. Revelation 21 tells us about the new Jerusalem, the new Mount Zion. And that chapter really fills out what Micah starts here in Micah 4. A new Jerusalem will come down from heaven, the city of the people of God, and God will dwell with them there. In verse 22 of Revelation 21, we read, And I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Jesus Christ is both the shepherd who gathers his people to himself, and he is the king that rules over them. Micah 4 is a reminder to us of the faithfulness of God. Now, life... Life often feels hopeless, unsatisfying, peaceless, pointless. I'm sure the people of Israel, after three chapters of Micah, felt pretty hopeless. Especially after being confronted with the judgment of God. But our hope, our hope is the same as theirs. God will gather his people to himself by his word and rule over them in the person of Jesus Christ. Amen? And he's already started that work. Jesus Christ reigns now over the church where he sits at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. The work has begun both in our hearts individually and in us as a people corporately. And we get to participate in the activity of the kingdom of God here right now. So it's not just a future hope we're talking about, as if that's a small thing. It is a call to action today to see yourself as a member of this kingdom of God that he will establish in its fullness when new Jerusalem comes down from heaven. Amen? What do we do in response the good news of these promises. Verse 5. We will say to one another, and we will say and proclaim to God, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Let's respond to the Lord in prayer and in song. Take a moment now and respond to the Lord individually about being a, a citizen and member of the kingdom of heaven.
Lord, we look around us and we see a world that uh, is still full of injustice and is waiting to be made right. As your word says, creation groans. And Lord, we do too. We want you to return, to put an end to war, to bring all the peoples of the world to yourself. Lord, we, we base our hope completely on that, on these promises, and we look forward to them. But Lord, now we know you have called us to specific things, and we know that you reign now. And so, Lord, we pray that you would embolden us to see the extension of the kingdom of God as our imperative, as something you have specifically called us individually to. I pray, Lord, that you would equip us for that work that we would feel the urgency of that call. In Jesus' name, amen.